Hey, Chief Year is coming up fast, and I'm kind of nervous. I don't know about you. I'm nervous too. <laughs> Fortunately, in the comfort of my pocket with my phone nearby, I have the OBG project that's keeping me up to date. Definitely. And really nicely is as chiefs, we now have one free year subscription to OBG First, which is where you can create your very own library online with all of their amazing articles that you can keep all in one place. And also a subscription service where they will send you daily emails with the most up-to-date recommendations and research. Want to find out how to get OBG First from the OBG Project? Head on over to CreeObserverCoffee.com and find out how you can get OBG First free for one year. All right, welcome back. This is Nick. And this is Faye. This is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. Today, once again, we have with us Dr. Aaron Cleary, who's an assistant professor at the Warren Alpert Brown School of Medicine and incoming MFM fellow to The Ohio State University. Welcome back, Aaron. Thanks. I'm happy to be here with you guys. So today we're going to be talking about early pregnancy of unknown location. Erin, what are our learning objectives for the day? Objectives today. Uh, we want to review the pertinent history and physical findings in a patient presenting with early pregnancy, discuss the utility of quantitative and qualitative uh, beta-HCG testing, review the utilization and limitations of transabdominal and transvaginal ultrasound in early pregnancy, and describe the early management of an early unlocated pregnancy. Um, so management of failed or abnormal intrauterine pregnancy or confirmed ectopic will not be discussed in detail here, but maybe we can stay tuned for a future podcast. Yes, perfect. I mean, we already have a lot to cover, so let's get started. This podcast is definitely designed for all of our OBGYN colleagues, but I know Faye and Nick have told me that it's not just OBGYNs that are listening to Creogs Over Coffee. So all of you emergency medicine providers and medical students, this is for you as well. So what are some facts that you guys know about early pregnancy and how these patients present to us? Yeah, so I think kind of one of the scary things is that with women presenting to an emergency department with first trimester vaginal bleeding, abdominal pain, or both of those symptoms, the prevalence of ectopic pregnancy has been reported up to 18%. Um, and ruptured ectopic pregnancy is a leading factor in hemorrhage-related maternal mortality and was the cause of almost 3% of all maternal deaths between the years 2011 and 2013. So timely identification of a pregnancy location and the appropriate medical or surgical intervention is life-saving. I just want to say that again. Um, identifying an ectopic pregnancy and managing it is life-saving for our patients. So any patient with an unlocated pregnancy should be considered to have a potential ectopic pregnancy um, and should be uh, managed accordingly. So let's start with the first objective. We'll go over the pertinent history and physical findings in a patient presenting with early pregnancy. For the purpose of this podcast, our standard patient uh, is going to be presenting with some combination of vaginal bleeding, pelvic pain, and a positive pregnancy test. As stated earlier, the prevalence of ectopic pregnancy in this population is up to 18%, although not all are diagnosed at this initial or first presentation. There are, on occasion, women who seek care for other medical problems and just incidentally have a positive pregnancy test, but no other clinical concern for ectopic pregnancy. Um, we'll readdress this patient population later. So, patient comes in and her chief complaint is vaginal bleeding and mild pelvic pain. What else do you guys want to know? 
So, I mean, I would take an HPI, right? We always start with a history. So I want to know frequency, how much she's bleeding, other symptoms, where that pain goes to, what it's like, what are what's making it better, what's making it worse. But also, of course, I want to know her last menstrual period. That is going to tell us potentially how far along she is in terms of weeks and days of gestation and maybe helpful in terms of our labs, our exams, and the imaging that we used to figure out what's going on. And then, of course, I want to know about the bleeding and the pain. Like I said, how much is she bleeding? How heavy is it? How many pads is she using? What kind of pain? When did it start? Where is it on her body? Um, what does it feel like? Crampy, sharp, does it go anywhere? What has she done to make it better or worse? And then any changes in her bowel or urinary habits, nausea or vomiting. Yeah, that last one too kind of helps uh, point us towards other causes for her symptoms. Um, so it may not be pregnancy related at all, maybe constipation or UTI. What other things about the past medical history do you want to know? A good past medical history, in addition to just chronic medical problems, is also going to include surgical history an obstetric history, particularly with any previous pregnancies, outcomes or complications, and whether the pregnancy is planned or desired. Um, in particular with this history with a previous ectopic, you want to know about the laterality and the method of treatment, whether that was medical or surgical. Women with a prior ectopic, regardless of how they were treated, are at much higher risk for an ectopic in a subsequent pregnancy, estimated to be about threefold to eightfold higher than pregnant women in the general population. From a GYN history perspective, you want to know if patient had regular menstrual periods, as we alluded to earlier, um, and whether they were using any sort of contraception and what kind at the time of conception. Risk of pregnancy, for instance, is quite low with an intrauterine device, but if a pregnancy is present with an IUD in place, the risk of ectopic can be as high as 1 in 2 in, with levonorgestrel IUDs and 1 in 16 pregnancies for a copper IUD. The incidence of ectopic by comparison for patients without current contraception is 1 in 50. History of prior sexually transmitted infections or pelvic inflammatory disease is also a separate risk factor, approximately threefold increased risk of ectopic for women with PID. And again, obtaining a thorough history will always be informative. Things like smoking um, and certain drug exposures can also be risk factors for ectopics. Excellent. Nick, that was a really great summary. All right, Faye, time to examine our patient. Where do we start? So sometimes even before I step into the room, I look at their vital signs because vitals are vital. I want to know how is my patient doing? Is she alive? What is her blood pressure? Is she hemodynamically stable? What's her heart rate? Um, is she hypotensive? Is she tachycardic? What's going on? After I go into the room, of course, other than listening to her heart and lungs, some of the most important parts of the exam for us is going to be that abdominal exam. I want to know where is she tender? Does she have guarding? Does she have rebound? Does she have something that's causing some peritoneal discomfort? And then, of course, the pelvic exam. Yes. Um, yes. So this definitely has to be done. And I know we say that and we say that if we may, we make it sound like it's really easy because we're OBGYNs, but really, you know, everybody from our emergency medicine colleagues, family medicine, pediatricians, even internal medicine, this is a very, very vital part of the exam to be done in someone who has a positive pregnancy test and is having abdominal pain or bleeding. Please don't skip this important part of the exam. Things that should be done. One, look in her vagina. Put a speculum in there. Is there blood? How much bleeding is there? 
if there's so much bleeding that you can't see the cervix, consider using some kind of suction device to help so that you can see what's going on at the cervix. If there is something that is at the cervix or in the vagina, remove it and send it to pathology. Second, take that speculum out and feel, see what her uterus feels like. So perform a bimanual exam. Is that uterus enlarged? Um, is there some kind of adnexal fullness or tenderness? Is there cervical motion tenderness? What's going on? Exactly. Um, and then, you know, after doing a very thorough physical exam, there's some other things that you want to know. Nick, what are you ordering after you've done your exam? Again, we're going to be thinking about labs and imaging at this point. As is the case with any patient who may require surgery or a blood transfusion, you want to have IV access um, and a type in screen or type in cross, as the case may be, and a starting hemoglobin with a CBC. Um, at this point as well, you'll probably want to go ahead and get a pelvic ultrasound and a quantitative beta HCG level. Excellent. Let's talk about beta HCG and quantitative and qualitative tests. So by this point, we have a lot of information about our patient. We have an idea of her gestational age or how far she, along she might be in the pregnancy based on her LMP and period regularity. Um, our differential probably includes ectopic pregnancy, um, but based on her specific history and physical exam, ectopic may be near the top or near the bottom of our differential. So how do we rule it in or rule it out? Let's talk about quantitative and qualitative beta-HCG. Faye, tell me a little bit about the threshold for a positive beta-HCG test. Yes. So first of all, beta-HCG is secreted into the maternal circulation after implantation, which is about six days after ovulation. So this is the earliest it could possibly be detected by an even ultra-sensitive serum test. So that would be about a week after a woman ovulates, or three weeks potentially after her period. So the threshold for a positive qualitative beta-HCG test, so you know your store-bought um, urine pregnancy test, is about 20 to 50 million international units, depending on the test. For quantitative serum tests, so your blood tests, that threshold is about 5 to 10 million international units and 1 to 2 million international units for those ultra-sensitive tests. The beta-HCG is supposed to double every 29 to 53 hours during the first 30 days after implantation of a viable intrauterine pregnancy. Um, and in a study of women with normal menstrual cycles who are trying to conceive, the median HCG concentration on the first day of expected but missed period was 239 milli international units per mil in the serum. Excellent. All right, let's get back to our patient. Nick, how does this help me? What am I going to do with this test in the emergency room? Yeah, so most emergency departments or urgent care centers dealing with women of reproductive age will quickly obtain a urine qualitative beta-HCG test. Again, this is a plus-minus, tells us if the patient is pregnant or not. The sperm and the egg found each other somewhere, whether it's in the uterus or somewhere we don't really want it to be. Again, while this puts ectopic pregnancy on our differential, it doesn't cinch the diagnosis. A qualitative test would not be sufficient. We need a quantitative value to, number one, interpret imaging, which I'm sure that we'll talk about here shortly. And number two, we want to have a baseline beta-HCG level in the event that we need to trend it. Again, as we talked about earlier with the doubling every 29 to 53 hours, we want to follow this going forward. Exactly. 
So most emergency rooms have algorithms for just about everything, um, and no doubt your emergency room has one about when in the uh, evaluation of a patient you get a quantitative beta HCG. Um, it might be before or after imaging is performed. Suffice to say, it's an essential piece of information at this first evaluation uh, due to something called the discriminatory zone. Faye, what is that? So the discriminatory zone is this concept that there is a quantitative beta HCG level above which the landmarks of a normal intrauterine pregnancy like a yolk sac and an embryo or a gestational sac should be visible on ultrasound. So the absence of a gestational sac when the beta HCG level is above this discriminatory zone, and again, this can be different depending on where you practice, is strongly suggestive of a non-viable pregnancy, with 50 to 70% of these pregnancies being ectopic. Um, ACOG has suggested setting a discriminatory zone conservatively high, um, as high as 3,500 milli international units per mil, to avoid the disruption of a potentially normal IUP or intrauterine pregnancy that a woman hopes to continue. The caveat with this is that a woman with an ectopic pregnancy are at higher risk of rupture with ongoing expectant management when you're awaiting your beta-HCG to reach this this discriminatory zone. And remember, a gestational sac alone is not diagnostic of a normal IUP. Ectopic pregnancies can cause the formation of what's called a pseudo-gestational sac or a collection of fluid within the uterus due to a decidual reaction. So definitive sonographic diagnosis of an IUP includes a yolk sac at minimum with the gestational sac or an embryo with a yolk sac and gestational sac. So... I really need that beta HCG uh, quant in order to interpret my imaging. So if you're going to order that, order it early and order it stat. Um, let's talk about what we're doing with imaging and the utilization and limitations of transabdominal and transvaginal ultrasound. Pelvic ultrasound is the gold standard in terms of an imaging modality for early pregnancy and for the evaluation of a suspected ectopic pregnancy. Um, ideally, a pelvic ultrasounds, in this case, we would use both transabdominal and transvaginal approaches. Transabdominal evaluation should be performed after adequate filling of the bladder. It has a wider view of the pelvis and provides a better visualization of the uterine fundus and superiorly positioned adnexa. It can be used quickly to visualize free fluid or hemorrhage within the peritoneal cavity, as many of our emergency medicine listeners may be aware of with fast scan. A transvaginal examination should be performed, on the other hand, after voiding. It provides excellent near-field resolution and gives us a detailed evaluation of the endometrial cavity. Transvaginal ultrasound also affords us a more detailed assessment of the ovaries and other adnexal structures. Yep. So a sonographic visual visualization of an intrauterine gestational sac containing a yolk sac and or embryo along with the normal adnexal structures essentially excludes the possibility of an ectopic pregnancy. Um, when there's no sonographic evidence of an intrauterine pregnancy and patients have a beta HCG quant level above the discriminatory zone, an alternative source for this uh, beta HCG level must be sought out. A tubal ectopic pregnancy is most commonly seen as an extra ovarian heterogeneous mass, usually representative of a hematoma at the site of the ectopic implantation. And this mass can demonstrate various degrees of echogenicity depending on the age of the blood products. 
So the second most common sign of ectopic pregnancy is the tubal ring sign or an echogenic ring in the adnexa with circumferential vascularity on color Doppler surrounding an unruptured ectopic pregnancy. This is also sometimes referred to as the ring of fire. And this has a 95% positive predictive value of an ectopic pregnancy. Rarely, an extrauterine gestational sac with an embryo within it can be seen. This also confirms an ectopic pregnancy that is somewhere else in the abdomen. Also, the presence of free intraperitoneal fluid in patients with a positive pregnancy test in empty uterus has a 69% specificity and 63% sensitivity for ectopic pregnancy. A moderate or large volume free fluid with floating debris, blood products, and organized blood clots are also suspicious features for ectopic pregnancy. And remember, 10% of patients with ectopic pregnancy will also have this so-called pseudogestational sac, which is a small amount of intrauterine fluid. Let's describe the early management of these early unlocated pregnancies. Our imaging results will fall into one of five main categories. Number one, we have an intrauterine pregnancy with normal adnexa. Normal pregnancy, this patient does not have an ectopic. You can cross that off your differential. Number two, the patient has an intrauterine pregnancy but has abnormal adnexa. Although rare, we do need to evaluate for the possibility of a heterotopic pregnancy or presence of both an intra- and extrauterine pregnancy. Number three, we do not see evidence of an intrauterine pregnancy, but there's an extrauterine mass with a yolk sac or fetal pole. This confirms ectopic pregnancy. Number four, there's no intrauterine pregnancy, but there's an indexal mass without a yolk sac. Uh, this is suspicious, but not diagnostic of ectopic pregnancy. And finally, and the one that's most difficult, is a patient with no intrauterine pregnancy, normal adnexa. And so depending on your beta-HCG quant level, our differential may include a normal but early IUP, a failed IUP, or a still unidentified ectopic pregnancy. So how do we think about a patient who has a pregnancy located? Fortunately, with a located pregnancy, we've, as you mentioned, ruled out an ectopic. So that's great, but complaints of pain or bleeding may still require further assessment. When the patient's deemed stable, the patient should be provided a prescription for prenatal vitamins and referred to prenatal care or to discuss her options should the pregnancy be undesired. A stable patient with a suspected heterotopic pregnancy requires serial imaging to evaluate for that progression or to confirm the ectopic pregnancy. So a patient with a confirmed heterotopic, which is about 1 in 10,000 incidents, uh, requires surgical removal of the ectopic as medical management with methotrexate poses unacceptable risk to the pregnancy located in the uterus. So a patient who has a confirmed ectopic requires evaluation and counseling by an OBGYN and should be evaluated as a candidate for either medical or surgical evaluation. And then patients who have a suspected ectopic pregnancy based on no evidence of an intrauterine pregnancy and abnormal adnexa need to be evaluated by an OBGYN. If this patient is not stable, she may require surgical evaluation and direct inspection of the pelvis. A stable patient may be a candidate for expectant management and trending of the beta-HCG levels. And delving further into expectant management, this would also be appropriate for stable patients with no intrauterine pregnancy and normal adnexa, putting them in the category of an early unlocated pregnancy. Most of these patients will have a beta-HCG level below the discriminatory zone. 
often this is the case of an incidental pregnancy that's discovered when seeking care for an unrelated complaint. So kind of as we delve in, what exactly do we mean by expectant management? Ultimately, that means assessing a quantitative beta HCG level about every 48 hours. And we can see a number of different trends with this. We can divide this into three scenarios. So in scenario A, beta HCG level rises appropriately, so it doubles approximately every two days. This patient, if they are stable without pain, bleeding, they should have a repeat imaging when the beta HCG level is estimated to be well above the discriminatory zone and visualization of an IUP is expected. The second scenario is that the beta HCG level falls precipitously. Um, this is highly suspicious for a failed intrauterine pregnancy or spontaneous abortion, especially if the patient also presented with heavy vaginal bleeding. Um, she should be offered grief counseling and an outpatient OBGYN follow-up visit to discuss desire for future pregnancies or workup for recurrent pregnancy loss if this is the second or third loss for this patient. The third scenario is kind of the middle ground here. The beta HCG level doesn't really rise appropriately, nor does it drop precipitously. At this point, we need to be more concerned about the possibility of ectopic pregnancy, but an abnormal intrauterine pregnancy remains on the differential. So what do we do? We're going to repeat pelvic imaging, um, you know, kind of on a PRN basis in the evaluation of any new symptoms um, or with ongoing uh, slowly rising or changing beta-HCG levels. Repeat imaging may uh, demonstrate new intrauterine structures or evolving or new adnexal masses. What do you guys think about manual vacuum aspiration and when we use that? Yeah, so it helps in terms of locating the pregnancy and guides counseling on the appropriateness of medical or surgical management of ectopic pregnancy. So um, you would use manual vacuum aspiration if you think that there is not a normal intrauterine pregnancy, because by removing the contents of the uterus, that could potentially tell you that there is that, that there was pregnancy tissue in the uterus. And if there's not, then that makes it seem more likely that there is an ectopic pregnancy. So the way that you would do this is immediate or frozen evaluation of the tissue by yourself or a pathologist. You can then get repeat beta HCGs between 12 to 24 hours after, after the MVA. If you see a precipitous drop, this would be expected after removal of an intrauterine products of conception. However, if the beta HCG level is plateauing or rising after an MVA, then this would be more suspicious for an ectopic pregnancy and management for ectopic should be recommended. Finally, awaiting final pathology confirmation, which can take several days or even weeks, is not advised as patients with an untreated ectopic pregnancy is at risk for rupture. Every patient who is stable and an appropriate candidate to trend beta-HCG levels will eventually declare herself um, either with a located intrauterine pregnancy, a failed intrauterine pregnancy or spontaneous abortion, or a confirmed or highly presumed ectopic pregnancy, um, and each should be managed accordingly. And I guess we'll save management of these for next time, but again, thank you, Erin, for coming in and sharing with us the workup for early unlocated pregnancy. Yeah. All right, Nick. So let's go ahead and sum up. Remember, in women who come to the emergency room with first trimester bleeding, abdominal pain, or both, the prevalence of ectopic pregnancy is up to 18%. And this is a very important topic because the timely identification of pregnancy location and appropriate medical or surgical intervention is a life-saving intervention. Any patient with an unlocated pregnancy should be considered to have a potential ectopic pregnancy until proven otherwise. 
Women who have had a prior ectopic, regardless of method of treatment, are at a higher risk for ectopic in a subsequent pregnancy, up to three to eight-fold higher compared with other women. Additional risk factors for ectopic include pregnancy with an IUD in place, where the risk of ectopic is 1 in 2 with levonorgestrel IUDs, and 1 in 16 with a copper IUD. Women with a history of PID additionally have an approximately three-fold increased risk of ectopic. In addition to the usual history and physical, please do a pelvic exam. Moving on from there, in terms of our laboratory testing, the threshold for a positive qualitative beta-HCG test based on urine is 20 to 50 milli international units, depending on the test. For serum tests, the threshold is 5 to 10 milli international units and 1 to 2 milli international units for ultra-sensitive tests. The beta-HCG concentration doubles every 29 to 53 hours during the first 30 days after implantation of a viable intrauterine pregnancy. However, when an ectopic pregnancy is on the differential, a qualitative test is not sufficient. A serum quantitative value is necessary in order to interpret imaging and have a baseline in the event that the beta-HCG must be trended. As we now talk about imaging, the important concept to remember is that of the discriminatory zone. The level of beta-HCG above which the landmarks of a normal intrauterine pregnancy, the yolk sac and or the embryo, should be visible on an ultrasound. This is institution dependent. The absence of a gestational sac when the beta-HCG level is above the discriminatory zone is strongly suggestive of non-viable pregnancy, with 50 to 70% of these being an ectopic. A pelvic ultrasound is the gold standard first-line imaging modality in early pregnancy and for evaluation of a suspected ectopic pregnancy. And just to summarize, your findings will fall into one of five main categories. One, normal intrauterine pregnancy with normal adnexa or a normal pregnancy. Two, an intrauterine pregnancy with abnormal adnexa, which though rare, um, we should evaluate for something called a heterotopic pregnancy or the presence of both an intra- and extrauterine pregnancy. Three, there could be no intrauterine pregnancy and an extrauterine mass with a yolk sac or a fetal pole, which would confirm an ectopic pregnancy. Four, no intrauterine pregnancy and an adnexal mass without a yolk sac or fetal pole, which is suspicious for ectopic pregnancy. And finally, five, no intrauterine pregnancy, and normal adnexa. And this means that the differential includes a normal, though early, intrauterine pregnancy, a failed intrauterine pregnancy, or an unidentified ectopic. A patient who has a confirmed ectopic pregnancy requires evaluation and counseling by an OBGYN to evaluate their candidacy for medical or surgical intervention. Patients who fall into the last category of the above scenarios that Faye spoke of, the no IUP and normal adnexa, are candidates for expectant management assuming they are stable. What this means is a serial quantitative beta-HCG measurement every 48 hours to determine what the trend is. In the first scenario here, the beta-HCG level approximately doubles every two days, which is what we'd expect for a normal intrauterine pregnancy. In the second scenario, the beta-HCG level could fall precipitously, suggesting a failed pregnancy. And in the third scenario, the beta-HCG level may not rise appropriately nor drop precipitously, and this would raise our suspicion but does not confirm yet ectopic pregnancy. Again, abnormal IUP remains on the differential at that point.
And I should mention here too that even about, I think, 10 to 15% of ectopic pregnancies may have a normal rise in the beta HCG level. And so um, we're obviously going to be repeating that imaging once the beta HCG is above the discriminatory zone, uh, but imaging should uh, be performed sooner if the patient has any other symptoms that are concerning. And of course, every patient who is stable and an appropriate candidate to trend beta HCG levels will eventually declare herself, either with a located intrauterine pregnancy, a failed intrauterine pregnancy, or spontaneous abortion, or a confirmed or presumed ectopic pregnancy. That's it, guys. Thanks so much. All right. So once again, I'm Nick. I'm Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode, go on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Catch us online, Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee One, Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, or on Patreon where you can get a shout out on the show or some cool swag, patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee. You can also go on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com to find some adjunct learning material to help with this episode. You want to give your love to Erin and you can't wait for her to get to Ohio? Or if you want to give us a shout out, some advice, ideas for future episodes, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.